Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator Into the Arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organisations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Nature Footwear. Nature Footwear are designed around the natural shape of your feet and are handmade in Portugal from environmentally responsible materials. Every shoe purchased contributes to the acquisition of wild forests for permanent preservation. Nature shoes, boots and sandals are comfortable from the first step, responsible to the last. See the range either in-store or by visiting naturefootwear.com.au. Hey there, nice to have you on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Today we've got a recording from the launch event of our truth issue of Dumbo Feather. It's a conversation between two familiar voices on the podcast, author and activist Sarah Wilson and publisher of Dumbo Feather, Barry Liberman. There's not much to intro to this one other than to say I'm very sorry about the abysmal audio quality. The event was recorded live in Sydney and streamed over Zoom. And I think somehow in that process, we ended up with this rough audio. But the conversation is so insightful and useful for anyone grappling with rage and divisiveness and kind of swirling confusion and mistruths of this moment that we really wanted to put it out there. I think it becomes bearable after a few minutes in or you get used to it, maybe, but see how you go. The event took place in March this year. Sexual politics, I think we need to start there. Australia's a good example right now. Women in parliament, sexual assault, with everything that's happening with misogyny in Australian politics. A lot of women are talking about it and sharing their stories. What do you think has shifted that women are suddenly telling the truth? It's a really great question because I am aware of it myself. I've got a legitimate licence to be talking this stuff without being accused of not being able to take a joke not been laid back for being a bit of hard work and an old semo. And so I think now it's the collective power that has enabled many of us to suddenly say the stuff that we want to say. And I'm sure many of you in the room are aware of some of the ABC journalists, Annabelle Crabb in particular. We suddenly have this opening where we can actually speak a truth that we weren't even aware within ourselves that we weren't speaking And I've witnessed it in the last five weeks within myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, I've stayed quiet on that. The Kate Ellis book, every single woman she interviewed had been sexually harassed or assaulted in their role as an MP in Parliament House. It was interesting how so many of these women thought it was normal. I almost think that if you're not angry and outraged at the moment, then you're not paying attention. We will acknowledge that that is an appropriate reaction to the times then we can actually respond appropriately. I think that when we live in a culture or times where we bottle it up and then it comes out in really perverse and sort of warped ways, we all know that. We've been in relationships, whether it's in a work environment or in a partnership, where we don't get to speak our truth and it comes out and we go, oh, my God, I can't believe I reacted to that when that's the bigger issue. 
I think there has been an outrage culture in part because everything's amplified. So we all go down our little rabbit holes where we start to see a lot of bad stuff going on. There is plenty to be outraged about. Mm. I'm wondering what spaces and places can we metabolise our outrage before we launch at other people with definitive narratives? Yeah, Twitter is an example of where you probably don't want to be playing around with that outrage too much. I try to limit the amount of news I have, and this is my practice. I listen to Radio National in the morning, and then I don't interact during the day. I don't have Twitter or Facebook feeds coming in at all. I have no notifications. At the end of the day, I watch ABC News. Then on the weekend, I save a bunch of longer, more considered reads, and that's another piece of advice for managing this outrage, this influx of information. I read the longer reads. That actually gets you discerning. Mm -hmm. So reading, working, handwriting all go at the same pace as discerning thought. And so much of what's going on in the world, so many of the ills or the dis-ease that's going on is because we do not have space for discerning thought. We feel we don't have time and space to think out an idea properly. We don't even have space to discuss our moral values, what matters to us. And it's understandable. We can't blame ourselves. I mean, we now get this stuff and we have minus five minutes before we can work out whether it's actually going to destroy humanity as we know it. Creating time for discernment within your own practice of news reading is really important. No one's going to come and say this. We have to do it for ourselves and then we have to role model to the people around us. And I've done it before where I've shared a meme before I've actually read the full article and, God forbid, going and reading the full research paper, you know, from original sources. I love it. Mm. And I know that this is a bit of a bugbear for you, but let's talk to it. Overwhelm. I think that trust has been broken mm-hmm. in terms of where we go to get our truths and how we go down rabbit holes and research. At some point it feels like I have to shut it all off and just be very, very simple. Like here with lights behind it is holding paradox. Mm. And that paradox is maybe you're simplifying your life or you're having to rest back control of time. How do we use these platforms designed with the psychology of an 11-year-old boy in mature and evolved ways? Mm. And we're having to retrofit our lives by saying, I'm not going to have notifications between this time. And it is exhausting. I'm going to answer in nebulous way, which I hope will cover off a number of those questions and tell me if I haven't captured it. The overwhelm's happening from too much information, but also quite a lot of grief, anger, fear, the desire to blame. These are all legitimate things that we're all feeling for very valid reasons right now. And what that does is it can shut down the prefrontal cortex and it can take us into quite a primitive state in an emergency or when we're under threat, going to flight or fight. When those are not available, which at the moment with just the barrage coming at us, there's no room to fight or flee because where are we going to go? There's the freeze mechanism, which is also available to us. And so the example I use in my book is the idea of a deer that can no longer outrun the tiger. They also can't fight it. So its only mechanism for survival is to collapse in a heap and play dead. Heart stops, lungs stop. For all intents and purposes, it's dead. And in that moment, the tiger backs off, maybe goes and gets its cubs, come back, let's have a leisurely lunch together. In that moment, the deer has its one last chance of jerking back alive 
that prefrontal cortex comes back online and it can flee for its life. The biological mechanism, and humans have that mechanism as well available. And freeze comes about with sexual assault victims. The only way they can cope with the overwhelm of the physical threat, the emotional threat that's happening is to go into shutdown. And that can also happen with all kinds of trauma as well. And I think it happens when we are faced with the threats that we have at the moment, existential threat and the hyper objects that some people talk about. A hyper object is the climate crisis. It's COVID. Issues that are so large that we can't even pull back from it and get an objective view because we're in it and we're complicit. We're both victim and perpetrator and we know it. And how on earth can we deal with that? Our cognitive functions can't cope with that. And so we go into overwhelm and the freeze mode. And Barry mentioned that I've got a bit of an aversion to this overwhelmed state because we rest on it too much. And there's all this, oh, cocooning, I'm triggered, I just need a self-help day. And we've adopted these terms to give ourselves an excuse. Now, on the one hand, it's understandable we're overwhelmed. On the other hand, we are in an existential crisis. We've got to be that deer and jerk back into gear again. We can't stay in that frozen state. So that's what I try to rally around. Now, to bring in the nuance, the paradoxes, how can we sit in and hold that space? I think that we have reverted and humans revert to didactic thinking when we are in a cook spot. And what we've had in the past when we face any kind of crisis, on the one hand, the individualistic urge to just go and gather food and resources for ourselves and not share them. And then we have the need to survive via the community, the collective, because we don't have fangs. We can't outrun very many things on the planet. We don't have poison. All we can do is use our ability to connect with other humans and form a tribe and, and outsmart our predators. That's all we've got. So we've got to find that nice tension. And what we've done throughout history is found these moral umpires, wise people, shaman, community leaders, trade unions, religious leaders who can navigate that nice balance, that tension, so we don't swing too far into individualism and threaten the human race which is exactly what neoliberalism has done for the last 50, 60 years. So we no longer have that discourse. The discernment isn't happening. And so we revert to black and white rather than having a dialogue around nuances and the greys in between. We're doing the split with no one to catch it when it's too far. And the fragmentation, everything that we are feeling that is causing the despair in this world today is the reign of the individual over the respect for the collective. And that's not to say we should all become completely collective. It's a tension. It's a huge tension. It's a balance. So if we go back to that first part of our conversation around sexual assault, misogyny in parliament, I had friends who came over the other night and they were raging against Scott Morrison mm -hmm. and the government's handling. And I just had this crazy, wild moment because I do a lot of intergenerational conversation. A lot. Yeah. But I went, you've got no idea, actually no idea what everyone's talking about. Mm -hmm. Ducking for cover, he's playing all the old games, aggression, distraction, blame, blame, shut, we all do it. So mm -hmm. my point is we all get to a place where we understand we're human. We're of our time. Even I'm having to learn to say they and them. That's not my vintage. Yeah. Ownership of language the ownership of culture, these things are tense and they're intergenerational and yet you've got something as profoundly important 
as addressing misogyny in the halls of power. The intergenerational dig is, oh, well, you're not very resilient. You're having a whinge. How do we do that incredibly subtle but powerful translation piece where we bring yeah. more of us along as opposed to one of my friends in the US was saying, well, we've got to use the tactics of the other side against them. And I said, I don't want to do that. I think talking about that space of metabolising the anger and the outrage to be more effective with that intergenerational transition Mm -hmm. where more people come on board and are alienated. Yeah. I mentioned this in my book. I don't know if you remember this um, very Kali rage. And it goes back to one of your original questions about rage being appropriate. So Kali is the Hindu goddess of female rage. In that culture, she was seen as an absolute balancing force Mm. that was required. Men and women just accepted that that's what happened. So when Shiva is mucking up and he's ruling the planet and he's meditating too much, his soldiers are destroying the planet. And so the gods send down Kali and she takes the form of this beautiful goddess. And when she gets pissed off and he's just gone to the point of maybe where Scott Morrison is at the moment, just enraging people, she comes out with men's skulls around her neck and six arms with daggers. And she goes and just slices off the heads of the men who are destroying the planet and meditating too much. And she comes up to Shiva and she's about to sort of kill him and goes, yep, all right, got your message. And the world recorrects. So anyone who understands the Vedas, it's about a rebalancing. It's not about right and wrong. It's about things get out of balance and then you bring in a force to rebalance it. And so I think it could actually be a very, very good antidote and solution right now. And I think that a lot of women are feeling it and feeling quite responsible about it because you know what? We've got our zenness. We've done our meditation courses. We've done all the self-help workshops. Uh, We know how to do some of this language and we will probably do it pretty well when we come out and hopefully via the female independence movement in the next election. I'm hoping that might be Mm. the path forward. So I think that a certain type of rage and a certain way, it's appropriate. Revolution requires that. I think a lot of us are feeling there's a perfect storm erupting. And I have got to say, I love it. I am vibrant. I've got more energy than I've ever had. I'm not going to abuse my personal power. I'm not going to get on my high horse and be cruel to men and blame and try to belittle them and fail to understand why. So one of the most powerful things we can do is turn any anger or whatever we might have into action. And that's been shown to be the best salve for any strong, virtually destructive emotion is to turn it into action at a personal level, but as a collective force, it's wonderful. This is the only way I can see to the climate crisis as well. We have got to make the new way of being more charming, more cool, more wonderful in the status quo. Hmm. That is the only way that things are going to shift. So it's a double whammy. We actually will hopefully produce something really wonderful and charming and inclusive My challenge remains, which is there's a whole lot of people that are going to be left behind and they voted for Donald Trump. And so I am really concerned about shouting, blaming, rage-filled echo chambers that think they're talking Mm -hmm. to other people. What about people claiming different truths and how do we find common ground? So I think maybe there's this convergence or this conversation around truth, Mm -hmm. shared values. I've had to do a lot of chats about conspiracy theories and understanding how to have a conversation, maybe with a Trump voter, for instance. And really the best way is to talk the common feeling, the common 
fear, the common despair. And really what you can find is that whether it's a Trump voter who's now feeling quite exposed or it's a woke person in a Prius, we are feeling the same thing. And that's the level that we can talk at. The one of the best ways to have a discussion with somebody who's absolutely determined that Daniel Andrews was storing children under tunnels during COVID for sex purposes, use an example, for instance, like people who are anti-vaccinations, is to go, well, we're probably all wanting to look after even the sick and the elderly and everybody, as many people as possible, live through this. So we can establish that as a base and then go, okay, so totally understand you're not into vaccines. How do you think we should do it? And then you can start to build from there. It can't be about a gotcha moment. Because I think part of the desire to have a conversation around truth is can we just all get on the same page about the same truths? And there's a whole world of I need to convert this person who's a weird racist, there's no climate change. We need to get on the same page here because the clock is ticking. Can I throw another piece into this? I'm really trying to solve the problem here. So the other thing is, have you heard of the seven tribes of climate denial and change? Monash has replicated it just recently. And there's the people at one end who are climate denialists and then you've got the fully climate active type. The thing is, we all do know there's some shit going down. Animals are extinct. There's this and that happening. These two groups down here, it's not worth trying to spend energy on them. They'll gradually move as everybody else moves. It's about converting people who are sort of concerned but not engaged into the next camp and then this camp into the next camp. And so that's how most climate activists are working now is a quite a focused program, not trying to convert the denialists. Now, when you do that, and it's a less exhausting job, mostly trying to inspire people, I believe there is more compassion, more space for understanding, more space for holding the energy of maybe those who feel disenfranchised, those who are feeling very scared about, say, their coal jobs, etc. So that's the way I see it. But I do think we're in an emergency. And to a certain extent, if you look at throughout history, I don't know that there is time to go and have one-on-one group sessions with our recalcitrant uncle who believes that the Queen is a shape-shifting lizard, that kind of thing. The QAnon conspiracies had a purpose. Their main thing is destabilising to bring down democracy, which is what they say about the climate. The climate movement is destabilising narrative to tear apart capitalism and I guess it could be perceived as that, yeah. So you were mentioning something before about climate pessimism as a tactic. Yeah. Let's go there. I want to understand a bit more. Well, climate denialism in Australia is where we're seeing it quite evidently. So we had climate denialism and now equally, I think, destructive force is climate pessimism where you say, oh, well, it's probably not worth doing it anyway and that kind of thing, but also climate distraction. There's a lot of distraction in and around, oh, gas load recovery and rather than just facing the IPCC or Paris Agreement target. It's just comical watching the way that they will distract from answering a question around that. That is the latest tactic, is distraction and also the pessimism. It's a real problem because humans are likely to give up if they feel there's no point. Are there any spaces where you're really enjoying finding other people and having this discourse that's nourishing and generative? I'm reasonably left-wing. Some people might say rapidly left-wing. I've realised that most of my friendship group at the moment is former Liberal voters. Mm. And 
just recently, in the last two weeks, a bunch of them have reached out to me and, and wanted to get involved in climate stuff that I'm doing and other projects I'm working on and really wanting to enable what I'm doing. And it's been really interesting because it's getting into the mind of people who are really going through a moment of awakening and spelling a sense of betrayal by the Liberal Party. And I'm finding it wonderfully heartening because they're being very humble and vulnerable about it. Maybe woken up to the climate crisis and the penny drops and then there's this terrible guilt for not having worked it out earlier. And as you know from my book, that is my biggest fear is that if people in 10 years' time go, oh, my God, too late, and I didn't do everything I could. I described this poster that was hanging in Bondi that said, Daddy, what did you do to fight the climate crisis? And so that's my biggest fear, is that people don't have the opportunity to have that penny drop moment. And then equally, it's a very beautiful moment when they then just berate themselves. It's not their fault. They've been systemically convinced that there's a certain way of living, a certain way of being, and it's like a cult. It's completely hypnotic. What I'm talking about with language, mm. when I'm talking about rage, absolute truths, echo chambers, we're angry, we're afraid, we're grieving so much. Mm-hmm. We're talking about millions of human beings dying from a pandemic. Now we've just had floods. This shit is real, it's happening fast, and we're in it. And I feel... There is an enormous threat, which I understand, to us maintaining our humanity. And when you were talking before, the two words that came up for me were hospitable spaces. Yep. How can we sustain or hold hospitable spaces where we don't make assumptions about each other? I think we can take the conversation down a deeper layer to discuss really about the almost spiritual strength of holding space as individuals, where you do need to be able to find a sweet spot to dance back and forwards. I can tend to get outraged. I can tend to just want to walk outside and yet another doofus with a takeaway coffee cup sitting in. The other day it was a guy and I said, hey, I know his name, he lives up the road. Takeaway coffee cup, you're sitting in, do you have to? He's like, oh, oh, I like the design on the cup. The poor guy ran into me twice again that day. So I have that, I'm right and you're wrong, that sort of thing. What I've found, though, the deeper I go into my understanding of this, the cognitive dissonances, the pain that people are feeling, reading about people in the Midwest, in Trump land, and really trying to see, and I said this in First We Make the Beast Beautiful as an exercise, is to look at a photo of yourself as a seven-year-old to understand your humanity and your care and your pain. And so I try to go into that space. And what enables me to go into that space, you know, Rumi's field, in a way that's powerful where I can feel my energy expanding and I feel that I am in some kind of flow in Dharma, is via reading, funnily enough. It's knowing more and more, learning, doing the deep reading, So art forms can also take us straight to that juicy point of shared humanity. Mm. There is that beautiful connection that we can get. And in that space, then I personally feel I can go into a space where I can hold the nuances or a lot more than I would normally. I feel an incredible expansive strength and I can take on more and more load. I judge myself 
like I can't stop. Yeah. It's a button I can't stop pressing. It's how we're taught to assess the world. That's safe, that's unsafe. Rewiring that, I don't, I'm not going to be able to do that in this lifetime, but the dropping into practices that keep you in your depths, that keep you expansive, then doing research, then listening to music, then coming at an issue that you yep. care deeply about and refining the truth mm-hmm. of what you have to say. I just feel how we dig into that right now is as important as the truth. Meditation itself. helps with that. And as you know, the whole premise of my book, This One Wild and Precious Life, because I had a subtitle for it, but no ending. The subtitle was Promise of an Ending, which was a path forward through this fragmented world. And I was a month out of deadline. I'd still been a path. And it dawned on me because the whole book I'd written while hiking and going into nature. And every time I reached a stuck point, I'd go into nature. And as it was mentioned in the intro, you know, I lived out of one bag while I did that because that enabled me to do that in the most agile way possible, wherever I was in the world. What I realised is being in nature, observing even just the fractals of our eyes, our retinas work to fractals. And nature is all about fractal patterning, the repeated patterning over and over again, a daisy, a fern frond, a shell, and we recognise it. You know, we go into a, into a beautiful space of attunement and congruence in nature. So in terms of house, nature is the most wonderful way to connect into that beautiful, expansive space where we feel we can do what we're being asked to do right now. And as you said, there's not many absolutes out there, but the inevitability, the intelligence of life is something we can count on and we've lost that relationship, even though, of course, we are essentially it. We are it. There's no escaping it. And how we reconnect with one another is constantly returning to our own nature. Exactly. Go back to nature, go back to our nature. I'm actually quoting the back blurb on the of my book. It goes, we need to go back to nature, to our nature, and we need to love it and be in awe of it again because when we love something hard, we will fight to save it. And if we pull this thing off, oh, my God, how good will it be to be a human? I do believe that we've been put on this earth and we've evolved without our fangs, without our poisons, with all our foibles. We've been put on this earth to do this very job. And we can go one way or the other, and it's that finite now. And which path would you like to join? There's only two options, not a multitude any longer. It's got refined and it's got pure and it's got beautiful. Make your choice. That's where I think it's got to. And if we do pull it off, it'll be wonderful. And if we don't, we weren't meant to. We're meant to get kicked off the earth. The planet will survive. It will keep going. It will readjust without humans. That is the reality. And when we talk about environmentalism, it's a real flaw because environmentalism just talks about the poor koalas and, yes, the poor koalas. But really what we're talking about is the end of humanity. And do we care about that? I think we kind of do. There are time pressures on us aligning around truths. Mm. There are time pressures. There's never been time pressures. I mean, that's not true. I'm a student of history. In small groups, there were time pressures. The crises were different. The crises generally had a discernible enemy, the communists, the Nazis. And so we could rally because it was an us or them split and it was very easy to manage. When we don't have an identifiable enemy that we can all galvanise around, because we're tribal, it stops us from our individualism running rampant and we need an enemy. And when we don't have it, we create it. So it's the China virus. And we blame 
worse than you are to the bushfires. This is what we're doing at the moment, and that really is what the conspiracy is about. Yes. It's creating a sense of belonging, which I understand because there is suffering there. Underneath all of that, mm-hmm. we are talking about suffering. Like loneliness, disconnect, fragmentation yeah. means that we, and especially in a crisis, we need to connect around the tribe. I think that this is a big reason why we're falling into this trap and we're seeing the fake news and friends. We all know people have gone down that rabbit hole. Because in a crisis, we need to have an enemy. We need to feel that we get a sense of authority and agency in a very discombobulating world by being able to have information that no one's got. So in a crisis, we have a cognitive bias towards social proof, more so than we would normally. So we will share a Facebook post, even if we have an inclination that it's not right. We do it because we want to belong. We are primitively programmed to seek belonging over scientific information in a crisis. It's an amazing book, Rutger Bressman's book, Human Mind. Yeah. It's really just a great narrative about why we are good at sharing and collaborating and connection. We actually are kinder and more collectively minded than we give ourselves credit for. We actually lean in that direction. And in the past, we had these moral umpires, these guardrails that would ensure we would lean in that direction and actually do it for service. People liked going to church and doing charitable work because it did, in fact, make them feel good, not because they were told to by the priest. We don't have that anymore. So to your point, what are the spaces? What are the things that we can do? And really, this is the fun bit. You know, this is the thing about making it more charming. Reading Dumbo Feather is an example. Yeah to engage in spaces like this so that we can shift the the pendulum that's too far towards individualism to, to the collective again. Yeah, the effort of showing up. Yeah. You made it to the end of the episode. Thanks for sticking with it. If you enjoyed the discussion, you can read more on these topics in the truth issue of our magazine, available over at dumbofeather.com. You should also check out Sarah's latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, and her podcast, Wild, with Sarah Wilson. Cheers to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode, and to Sarah for always sharing with us so fully and honestly. Tune in next week for our special music mini-series of the Dumbo Feather podcast which we made to celebrate our latest issue with Bernard Fanning on the cover, all about music. See you there. Thanks to our friends at Nature Footwear, where you'll find shoes, boots and sandals that are good for your feet and kind to the planet. Naturefootwear.com.au